So welcome to the February edition of the Mindful News podcast. I've literally just flown back from Milwaukee, where it's really been the first time I've been, I've been able to travel in over two years. So very excited to be back on the podcast. And on today's episode, we talk with Tracy Brower, VP at Workplace Insight, author of The Secrets to Happiness at Work and Bring Work to Life, and just a wonderfully kind and knowledgeable human being. So it was after reading her article on empathy and management that I found in Forbes magazine and I had to reach out and ask some of my own questions. Happiness and mindfulness have always been very important passions of mine, but having worked in the corporate world for more than 15 years, it's always fascinated me to talk with experts who can combine these passions in a slightly different context. And today we focus on happiness and well-being in the workplace. In the first half, we talk about work-life balance, how to be a better leader by understanding employee anxiety and stress, why work is a place for us to satisfy our needs for social connections, the conservation of species and what we can learn from common characteristics in nature, and how sweating and outside of our comfort zones correlate to growth and happiness. And I always like to talk about alignment. You know, like no choice is a perfect choice. No job is perfect. No partner is perfect. No, you know, choice of where we're going to live is perfect. It's about what do I love to do? What do I have to do? And as much as possible, when we have alignment between those, that is a recipe for happier work. Yeah. Another thing we know about the future of work is that people will be more um, discerning, more um, picky about the level to which their employers support well-being and holistic looks at people and work life. Like that's one of the things that we know is a trend. Companies are supporting well-being more holistically, more strategically, more centrally, and employees are in turn using that as a criteria for employment. We look at, you know, leaders who are more empathetic um, really see that their teams are more innovative, their teams mm. perform better, their teams cooperate more, their teams have better mental health, their teams wow. are more, um, their teams experience more inclusivity and their teams experience more like um, appreciation for work life and what their particular situation is. Mindfulness is so connected to um, happiness. Um, and it's actually part of gratitude as well and part of presence and quiet. Um, we're more mindful that's so connected with happiness. And I think we're seeing it more connected with life satisfaction. The response from our last podcast, The Happiness Trap with Russ Harris, has had really positive feedback. And we're excited to launch our podcast next month with the father of modern day mindfulness and creator of the MBSR course, John Kabat-Zinn. Download the podcast wherever you get your other podcasts. And if you enjoy the content, subscribe, like, and show some love. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast where we discuss jobs and skills of the future and how mindfulness is playing and will increasingly continue to play a huge role in a successful workforce and those leading them. For more guided meditations and more podcasts, visit mindfulnews.uk. Thank you very much for taking the time to join me and share some of your wonderful insights. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Looking forward to it. A company that I followed on LinkedIn shared a wonderful article about empathy and why it is, why it is the most important leadership skill according to research. And again, that's how I came across your great article. And there's nothing I love more than watching or reading something inspiring and then reaching out to that person and engaging directly right so i'm very honored and extremely happy to have you join us today so a bit about me i've i've been working for a US soft com software company for about 15 years and at the same time i've been podcasting and, and learning about happiness well-being life satisfaction in general but also very much in the workplace so i was immediately drawn to your to your article and um, wanted to dig in a little deeper. So firstly, you have a background and an understanding about the changing nature of work, the workplace and, and the staff and the workers, I think, which is you know very pertinent in these unusual pandemic times of remote working and adapting to change. 
But would it be fair to say that your speciality or passion is about happiness? I see in your, the way that you describe yourself on your articles is always, you always lead with happiness and helping to spread that to others. So perhaps, you know, yeah, talk a little bit about that, you know, just to kind of set the tone, tell people a bit about who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that um, work is such a critical part of life. And sometimes we can assume that work is drudgery and, you know, the best part of work is the time off or the vacation time. But work is a really important part of how we spend our lives and our time, and it can absolutely be a source of happiness and joy and fulfillment. So my PhD is around the sociology of work, how we affect our work, how it affects us, how we get the most out of work, how we create work experiences that mean the most. And um, I think that it's so important for us to understand happiness, understand work life, understand fulfillment, understand how those fit together. And we don't always have to be happy every second at work. We'll have the ups and down days, but overall we can look for a sense of joy and contentment. Is it often perceived a bit weird to associate happiness and work together? Totally agree with you. Yes, sometimes it does feel like a little bit of an oxymoron, but I think we can really look for the work that serves us best. And I always like to talk about alignment, you know, like no choice is a perfect choice. No job is perfect. No partner is perfect. No, you know, choice of where we're going to live is perfect. It's about what do I love to do? What do I have to do? And as much as possible, when we have alignment between those, that is a recipe for happier work. And we are so social as humans, you know, even if we're introverted, we still need those connections. And work is a fundamental place where we make those connections, where we get that need met for connections with other people. Yeah, so how did you get into, along this path of your passions of education, happiness, and you know, teaching about the workplace and the future of thereof? How did those passions collide and how did that journey begin for you? Yeah, it was really interesting. I actually went back for my PhD. Our children at the time were in third grade and kindergarten and uh, I was living the dream. You know, I was working full time. I was going to school. I was, you know, wife, mother, all that kind of good stuff. And I thought, you know, this idea of balance, work-life balance just isn't enough. We need to think harder about like, what's the role of work in our lives? What are the ways that we can really feel fulfilled and not have to feel like it's a trade-off? Like I either mm, right, yeah. I'm enjoying the rest of my life. Like how can we, how can we create the conditions for happiness in the work environment that will serve us best, serve companies best, that, that really was how I got started. I think a lot of us are like that, right? Like we have our personal journey and then we get curious and interested and we're exploring based on our personal journey and then we're sharing. And I think that's, that's how it was for me anyway. Was there any struggle or was there any own personal pain that particularly inspired that caused the research or caused the digging around to finding out a bit more? Yeah. I think so. Like, I think we've all had positive and negative experiences at work for sure. Um, and I've had the honor, had the privilege of working with so many organizations. I've worked for a few organizations, but then with many, many organizations in terms of a consulting approach. And I just think that Sometimes it can be really tough. I worked with one organization for a while that was just toxic. It was completely toxic. And so, yeah, it was hard. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You try to stay optimistic. You're slogging through. And then when I finally made the decision to move on and then did move on, kind of in hindsight, you say to yourself, wow, oh, I've made it through that, right? Yeah. Or think about um, if you've ever had difficult situations at work, you tend to bond with those coworkers so much, you know, yeah, yeah. with on that project, right? Mm -hmm. It's like been through tough times together and then you always have that bond. So yeah, I think we've all had positive and negative experiences at work. And I think the opportunity to learn from that and take that forward in terms of, all right, how do I do best? How do I show up with my best self? 
How do I help to influence a situation? I think that's some of what we can take from it. Indeed. And what we, we are hearing a lot of is stress and anxiety in the workplace. And I think some of the refreshing insights from the more you read into it is how natural it is and how normal it is from, for you know, the percentage of staff, but for the individual as well, that they're struggling. Everyone struggles with their own demons. Everyone has their own levels of anxiety and not all the same. Some have it far worse, but how much have you seen of that and how much does it help to know from a management perspective that this exists in the workforce, you know, and how can that help as a leader to, to better manage and better to better lead with the scientific stats that X amount of people, you know, have clinical depression and then one in X, you know, fear, you know, will go through suicidal thoughts and blah, blah. And that's just in the general populace, right? So there's bound to be that representation in the workplace as well. Yeah, we're going through some really hard times. Like, um, we have seen such an increase in mental health issues. You know, in one study, 42% of people they were said they were struggling with mental health issues generally. And then it was like 75% of people struggling with a feeling of social isolation. And then more were looking at depression, anxiety, difficulty, um, even managing their thoughts or difficulty managing tasks, sort of a... Mm -hmm oral disintegration where they didn't know what day it was anymore. And wow. that correlated with distance, you know, like working from home or working remotely or feeling apart from coworkers. So um, that feel, and we're seeing a rise of workplace incivility. And we're seeing that when people experience stress at work, they have trouble sleeping, which translates into lots of other health issues and emotional issues. They may feel less confident about their parenting if they happen to be parents. Mm. And so all these sort of ancillary issues that occur if you're not loving your work. And the other thing I think is really interesting from a research perspective is that spillover is absolutely real. So if you're having a great time at work or a not so great time at work, you tend to perceive that in your personal life as well. But the opposite is true. If you're happy in your sort of work life outside of work, you do volunteer work or you have your things that you love to do outside of work, you will perceive more happiness inside of work. And so for me, the wow. takeaway message is that everything counts. And another takeaway message is that these things are so integrated, right? It, yep. It's again the idea that work and life aren't two separate containers. Work is part of a full life. And our experience in lots of parts of our lives influence each other, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. Wonderful insights being shared um, by Tracy. So, so thank you on that. Happiness is a, is a word that we hear thrown around today. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, for me, it is the goal of all goals, as Mathieu Ricard says, and thusly deserves some investigation. All right. So one of your posts last month was entitled, Le Learning is a sure path to happiness, and science proves it. And you dig into that, but not only is it a path to happiness, but potentially one to advance your career. Do you mind summarizing that for, for our listeners? And because it's, it's a fascinating thing. Yeah, so it is. There are so many. One of the things that's so interesting about happiness is that I call it the happiness paradox. The more you pursue happiness for its own sake as its own end goal, the less likely you are to be happy for a couple of reasons. It tends to focus you on what you don't already have. You're pursuing something and it reminds you what you don't already have. And it tends to focus you on you, which is actually negatively correlated with happiness. It's, mm. it's to be connected and contribute to the community and think about others in a generous sort of point of view that tends to be correlated with happiness. And so what we can do instead of pursuing happiness as its own end is accomplish happiness by creating other conditions toward happiness. And learning and stretch happen to be one of those that are at the top of the list and I just, I love this idea that like we all need time to rejuvenate and relax and, you know, sit on our back porch and read a book. Absolutely. We all need that time. But there is wonderful evidence that when you're learning something new, mm. when you're 
stretching, you're pushing yourself outside your comfort zone, that is super correlated with happiness because it tends to engage your brain more deeply, like you're curious, you're exploring, you're thinking. Um, it tends to link us with other people because a lot of times if we're learning something new, we're like working on a project or we're in a team trying to figure something out, um, yeah. it's also part of happiness because you have to push your own capabilities and sometimes you fail and learn something and sometimes you succeed and you feel that great sense of accomplishment because you've been out there, you've rolled up your sleeves. And so I like to say that sweating, whether literal or figurative, is a really, really great corollary to happiness because you're, you're working hard, you're putting yourself out there. We all have an instinct to matter. And so we want to to the community. And part of how we do that is by learning new things, by stretching, by seeking that growth. Yeah. And, and is that akin to when we look at the Maslow hierarchy of needs, how like kind of on the base level, it's like roof over your head, sexual needs, food, but then in which for so many, you know, millions of or thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, as we've evolved in the human species, where that was kind of the primary you know, let's make sure that we get some food by the end of the day so that we can all, you know, sit down, eat together. But then above that, speaking a little bit more to that sense of, you know, learning new stuff and growth, is that what that speaks to? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, you bet. And I think one of the things that's happened is that through the last couple of years, many of us are, you know, we talk about the top of the Maslow hierarchy, like how do we have a sense of belonging? How do we have a sense of achievement? Sure. How back, right? But a lot of us were bumped right back down to the bottom of that Maslow hierarchy, like, oh my gosh, am I safe? Do I have basic needs met? You know, mm. um, global economy went on the skids, we had those questions, but we also had questions about our physical safety in new ways, right? Like, mm. I walk into a store, am I, am I safe? And, yep. and we weren't used to having that. And so I think it's brought up this new needs set. It's brought up this new attention to our needs. And yeah. so idea of, I think the other thing that we know about um, Maslow's hierarchy is that we, we used to think that we would fulfill one needs set at the bottom of the hierarchy, and then we would move to the next one and the next Like a ladder. Yeah. Yeah. Like a sequential yes, exactly. ladder. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. 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 Like, oh, I'm done with that bottom rung. I'm all good on the next rung. And what we know is that the needs, we tend to ebb and flow through those needs, mm. and, you know, right. what's going on in our lives. And we tend yeah. to feel them together at the same time. So um, like belonging is a really good example. We, um, we don't just get a sense of belonging when we're with other people. We have a powerful sense of belonging when we have a shared sense of social identity. And when we have a shared sense of purpose, well, that's related to self-actualization, which is at the top, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this wonderful mixing. And that's one of the ways that we can create happiness at work too, is to realize yeah. how we're connected to others and trying mm -hmm. to accomplish something together. Which is interesting because, you know, I really enjoy going back and trying to understand the evolutionary um, development as to why we feel certain ways. and you know, one thing I was reading is about the idea of living in in groups and how through evolution, being in a community was the the safe way to, or th that would guarantee, further guarantee survival of your genes. And therefore we, you know, because being alone had so many dangers that it just made sense and evolutionarily made sense. And so do, does that same philosophy apply when we, when we join a company? It's like, this is my tribe now, right? So, and they say that meeting with your boss can can raise the same kind of stress responses as a life and death situation. You know, is that all tied together? Is there some kind of something deeply embedded in our history that makes us feel the need to, and sometimes that imposter syndrome where we feel like there's always a threat and an anxiety in, in the work that we're doing? Yes. Oh, I love this point. You know, there was a brilliant sociological study that was done across 60 different societies, 60. Mm. 
that looked yeah. at like the top sort of inborn or basic or repeated needs across multiple societies and lots of different kinds of people. And um, it found that there was, are some fundamental needs for things like fairness, for feeling like we're part of the group, for feeling that connectivity. So we know that that is absolutely true and deeply embedded. Another thing I think is so interesting to look at is um, when you see a characteristic across species that's called conservation of species. And so mm -hmm. it tends to also alert you that it's a really deep need or, or deeply embedded. So like giraffes form social networks, beluga whales form social networks, bats will hunt separately, but then come together to share a meal. So this idea sharing and connection is deeply embedded. And the other thing that I think is interesting, if we look at the more recent past, during the Industrial Revolution, um, people moved out of um, the countryside and they moved more into cities mm -hmm. and shifted the way that they thought about their identities. And the Industrial Revolution had a lot of negatives, of course. But one of the things that happened is instead of taking identity from like a neighbor group or a family group, because we're, you know, um, in the fields together, we came to cities and now we have more common identity with the people that we were working with. So I'm a baker right. among other bakers, or I do horseshoeing and, you know, we horseshoe together. Um, and that is when this idea of social identity associated with our work became more prevalent. Wow. And is where we started to really um, sort of see our work as part of our social identity, as part of how we make the contribution. So I just think it's interesting, to, as you point out, to look time and look deeply in terms of how we're wired. We're wired for the social connection. We're wired to make that contribution. Mm -hmm. Which is also interesting because the career that I chose was purely based on the results that I got in school. Uh -huh. The subjects where I had the strength and thought, okay, you're good at math, you're good at business, so you know you go and do that career. Uh, you know, as we've been talking, my passion and my love is more about helping others, talking about mindfulness and podcasting. So it completely, you know, it was a different path to the one that, you know, all the the parents and the guidances and say, hey, you got good grades, so pursue this. And so, like I said, 15 years into this company now, but you know, realizing that my true happiness comes from something very far away from the role that I'm doing now. So, so how much in, in, in what you teach and what you share speaks to the, the idea of doing something just to get money and survive versus following your passions and following stuff that, you know, that, that makes you thrive rather than just survive? Yeah, absolutely. I think that we can absolutely look at like a integrated picture of how we get our needs met. And it's so incredibly healthy and constructive that we might have a job that pays the bills and puts food on the table, but there are other ways that we want to seek to meet our happiness, to follow our passion. And I like to say that it's really smart to dream small, right? Like we don't have to change the world. We just have to figure out what we like to do and do more of that, right? Like that is that we contribute powerfully. And there are kind of like three levels as we think about work. There are some people who are like, you know, I've got a job, I put food on the table. That's good, period. And then there are some people that get the most meaning from their career or their function. Like, oh, that thing that I do, that thing that I'm specialist in is the thing that gives me the most meaning. And then third level is kind of calling, like the work that I do, I would do even if I weren't paid. Exactly, yeah. Do it deeply. And there's no judgment with any of those. Like we can contribute in a meaningful way through our work, no matter which of those levels we're at. But there's also this great research that suggests that when we have more diversity of interests, we are more likely to meet more of our needs. Mm. As we're able to like go get our, oh, I love math. I'm going to get my math need met through my job, but oh, adventure and I love the water. And so I'm going to be a windsurfer. And, and, and <laughs> so we're meeting multiple needs in multiple places. Yeah. So I think that's part of happiness as well. It's like 
it's not that the conditions have to be perfect for us to be happy. We're empowered to create our own happiness. Mm-hmm. Work may be a place that you get all your needs met, but if it's not, you have the opportunity to go out and find other things that's, that feed you. You're listening to the Mindful News Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking with author and journalist Tracy Brower. And in the second half, we discuss the industrial revolution and the effects this had on our social identity, working for money versus working for what you love, the key skills of the future and how mindfulness will be playing a huge role in boosting these, and also Tracy's top three key management skills for the future. So what would your advice be to someone like that's been in a job for 10 plus years and you know they're not at that that period where we would call it the midlife crisis where they start to doubt and question but you know what would your advice to someone who's just happily going along but you know they do their nine to five so that they go home and they can pay their bills they can get their holidays each year they can pay their car insurance etc but is there something more to that not just getting by but in that lane that i call thriving Yeah, thriving is um, so interesting. When we look at the thriving research, interestingly, it comes out of most of the thriving research comes out of elite athletes and child development. And thriving has a couple aspects to it. Thriving has a performance aspect, like you're performing brilliantly at your sort of top speed, um, figuratively speaking, and Thriving always has a stretch element to it. It has a development element to it. Like there's more, right? I ran my fastest marathon ever and next year I'm going to do it even better. And so I think that's one of the things we can think about for the person who's kind of just going along with their job. If they feel good about what they're doing and they, and just going along with their job, just in mm-hmm. Gives them lots of energy and capacity to do other things they love. Great. Mm. If they're just quote unquote going along in their job and they're feeling like there's just more, they want to offer more, then I think they absolutely should take the initiative to raise their hand and do a project outside of their lane, raise their hand and, you know, try to do more work, get involved in another team, maybe think about finding another role. I think we're in the middle of this talent revolution, yeah. fresh air. Effect. And so it's a buyer's market, right? It's a great time to look for something else or to expand what you're doing in your own job. Mm. Um, but I think too, we want to be less judgy about how we express ourselves in our jobs. Like my satisfaction in my role might be defined differently than yours or his or hers or theirs, right? Yeah. And so about kind of reflecting on what we need and how we can get that met most effectively in our work environments or outside of our work environments. And of the people that you speak to, do you find that the majority of them are in the, doing the job, loving it, doing it our own way and, you know, it brings us to joy or do you think the majority are like, we're just doing this because we're to get by, but until we find something better or it pays the bills and I'm, you know, I'm settling for this. Yeah, I think we've seen a dip. I really think we've seen a dip. I think pre-pandemic, we saw more people who were satisfied. They might not have been thrilled, but they were adequately satisfied. Mm -hmm. We've seen this absolute dip through the pandemic, which has been interesting. Mm. It's the severing. We've seen a severing of our loyalty to our jobs, to our employers, and to our regions. And that hasn't happened before in history. Usually mm-hmm. when turn and then an upturn, you see people holding on to their roles, right? Or recommitting. And I think we're at this moment where we've been so disrupted that we're thinking really consciously about why I work and what I do and with whom I work and for whom I work and where I work. And so this new consciousness, I think, is causing some level of kind of um, reset, rethink, maybe some um, realigning, um, and people are feeling more dissatisfied with their work. And I think that's causing this like upswell, right, of people looking around for something different, feeling this sort of vague sense of not having exactly what they want. 
mm-hmm. and then out to create it. Yeah. So let, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about the the future. So jobs in the future, skills of the future, trends of the future. Um. What has your research and expertise kind of highlighted about the changing nature of work? Um, and as we transition out of this global pandemic, what are a few of the f- important things to be aware of, not only as part of the workforce, but as part of the executive management team that leads them? Yeah, this is, I think we're at this fundamental reset. It's almost like a reboot of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things about it is that 40% of workers say they want to leave their current role. 43% of senior executives say they need higher headcount. But then a huge percentage of candidates are saying that they're ghosted. So it's like we've got jobs available, people who want them, but, but there isn't necessarily this matching that's coming. So it's almost like we need a reboot of the ecosystem. And those new... Is it unqualified people... Is, it, is, that, is that the reason why? It's because although the vacancies are there, but the skills are not there in the candidates applying for those. Yeah, and I think that the, I think it's the, <clears throat> when you're looking for a great candidate, it's always the needle in the haystack, right? The person who's the closest match. And as people are looking for new roles, the haystack is getting bigger, actually, right? And so it's yeah. even harder to find the right person. And then um, we know from a demographic standpoint, um, globally, uh, people who are about 28 make up the broadest percentage of demographics across multiple countries. And so at 28, you've kind of moved out of entry-level roles, right? And so yes. some of the entry levels harder. So there's some demographic trends that are that are at play as well. But I think if we look at what we can anticipate in the future, for sure, hybrid work is here to stay. For sure, more employee choice is here to stay. Mm-hmm. Another thing we know about the future of work is that people will be more um, discerning, more um, picky about the level to which their employers support well-being and holistic looks at people and work life. Like that's one of the things that we know is a trend. Companies are supporting well-being more holistically, more strategically, more centrally, and employees are in turn, using that as a criteria for employment. And I think also thinking about, you know, how will I be able to have flexibility in my work? So those are trends that we see. Another trend that's really interesting is um, around technology. And while a lot of the technology on the horizon isn't brand new, we've heard of it, we've seen it, we have a greater openness to it, more receptivity to it. And that technology, builds on itself and builds Mm. on each other. So that will shift not just the way we work, but the kind of work that we do. And the last thing I would say, there's so much around future. Yeah, right. The thing is that we will be moving faster because of all that technology building on itself. And before that reason, be more ambiguity. Like you'll, we don't know exactly what the future holds and we're going to be moving even faster toward it. And that is where innovation happens. So that skill of um, reading the market, experimenting, trying new things, if we already know everything about a landscape, that's not where the best innovation happens. But on the edge of like, ambiguity and future and speed, that is where innovation happens prevalently, right? So like the skill of um, reading the market, of being experimental, of trying new things, of empathy with users, um, and really designing new solutions based on an understanding of users will be really critical skills for the future as well. And and the the World Economic Forum posted the skills that are growing and those that are, are declining in 2022. So just to list you, list you a few. So on the growing side, it's stuff like analytical thinking and innovation, creativity, originality initiative, complex problem solving, leadership and social influence, emotional intelligence, reasoning. Um, and on the declining side, you know, manual dexterity, memory, um, reading, writing, math, quality control, uh, technology use, coordination, and time management. 
is that very much aligned with what you're you're speaking about what you're talking to and yeah you can share some insights on that yeah totally i mean i think that um clearly the things that are on the side of the column that are declining are things that technology is taking over for us right like mm -hmm. i don't have much great working memory i can just go find it on my laptop right or on the internet somewhere yeah. i don't well there's an app somewhere that can yeah. there's an app that will do it yeah there's right? an app for that yeah, yeah, yeah there's an app for that or yeah. like time management right like i get lots of reminders from my technology so maybe i don't have to manage my time in the same kinds of ways but those uniquely human skills and like a couple of the things that you mentioned one is leadership right like i like to say this is the great sift in terms of leadership like like this has really um brought to the surface the skills of leaders who can engage from a distance who can build trust who are holding people accountable for outcomes and results not just being you know present in a chair from nine to five or eight to five mm -hmm. um and so that leadership skill i think is increasingly important no matter what role we're in that ability to lead uh, build rapport, influence, that will be critical. Um, and it's going to be different because we have to build rapport from a distance increasingly, and we have to learn to engage differently and learn. Motivate, about yeah. Yes, and motivate. Yeah. So that's critical. And then, you know, we started by talking about empathy, and empathy becomes so incredibly important. There's a great study that you referenced that was in the article that I had written. Mm -hmm. We look at, you know, leaders who are more empathetic um, really see that their teams are more innovative, their teams mm. perform better, their teams cooperate more, their teams have better mental health, their teams wow. are more, um, their teams experience more inclusivity and their teams experience more like um, appreciation for work life and what their particular situation is. So empathy, I think we used to talk about empathy as kind of a soft skill, maybe something kind of- So what, what, can you describe what empathy is? And, yeah. Yeah, and explain why all these benefits you've mentioned, why that ties into empathy. Yeah, so empathy has everything to do with demonstrating attentiveness, being present, literally, figuratively, um, being um, sort of tuned in to other people. Um, what happens with empathy is we, we all have mirror neurons in our brains and we experience and go through what other people go through. And when we're able to connect with other people and be attentive to what they're going through, listen to what they're going through and be responsive to that, that will build those critical relationships. And I one of the things we've seen is we talked earlier about greater social isolation, greater feelings of distance. We've all gone through that to some extent. And so now empathy is even coming even more to the top of the um, needs set because we felt that distance. So empathy can be cognitive, like we're thinking, what would that person be thinking right now? Yeah, right. It can be emotional. Huh? How would that person be feeling right now? And it's linked to compassion too, right? Like, you, you care about other people. There's a great study that looked at, um, they were looking at people's um, brain responses when others went through difficult circumstances. And um, when, when strangers went through difficult circumstances, our brains lit up in an empathetic way. But when people we knew or thought of as friends went through difficult circumstances, even more parts of our brain lit up. So empathy is also something that connects us to each other. And we tend to be empathetic towards strangers, but even more empathetic toward people we know well. So it's like build our social capital. We build our bonds. We build our bridges when we tune into others and um, respect, appreciate, acknowledge the experience they're going through. Does that make sense? Yeah. And again, going back to the idea of you know, living in communities before you know to be empathetic and compassionate is a is a very good skill to have when you're when you want to be in the community right right rather than that more ego-centered narcissistic approach where it's all about me that the fact that you can yeah i feel sorry for you i want to help you 
that is a you know something perhaps that may, has evolved to ensure that we are you know more forgiving more understanding of our environment to to allow for more for better relationships and community yeah there's a really interesting study even on the structure of the brain like mm -hmm. if you look at the amygdala um it is yes. for people who are like heroes they're the ones that will like rush into the burning building or rush into the waves to save someone from drowning or donate a kidney to a stranger their yeah. amygdalas tend to be larger like they literally um see others pains and pain challenges respond to others pain more significantly and if you look at the brains of psychopaths their amygdalas are tiny like they just don't respond they don't have the the brain structure that responds to the experience of others so i think empathy is you know at, at a basic level it's just seeing responding and work team leaders don't have to be social workers right like they don't have to yeah. solve the problems, but checking in, connecting people with resources, those are a really good idea when it comes to demonstrating empathy. Yeah. In your conversations research, how often do you hear about mindfulness and meditation as it relates to well-being, but as a way to, to help relieve stress, etc.? Are you hearing that a lot? Yeah, absolutely. And I know this is an area of expertise for you, so mm -hmm. you in as well, but yeah. absolutely mindfulness is so connected to um, happiness. Um, and it's actually part of gratitude as well and part of presence and quiet. Um, we're more mindful that's so connected with happiness. And I think we're seeing it more connected with life satisfaction. Um, there's, an, there's some interesting work around, um, you know, the placebo effect and sure, um, yeah. mm -hmm. how we kind of create our own reality, right? There's so much evidence that our mood influences information that's coming at us. Um, but what we focus on tends to get bigger. And so when we marinate, whatever we're marinating in tends to what we take forward and how we perceive the world. In fact, the more people partake in social media, the less happy they tend to be because of comparisons and, you know, challenges with feeling left out potentially. The more people partake of media period, the less faith they have in humanity, the more yeah. they think the world is. And so Mindfulness becomes a way to detach from some of those things, mm -hmm. think about and reflect on and be present in a much more focused way, which does really good. But you weigh in on that. You're the expert. In the, like I said, the World Economic Forum, the skills that they portray are going to be really relevant and necessary in the future, especially like emotional intelligence. Well, I've spoken to Daniel Goldman, who coined the expression you know, 25 plus years ago, still holds the, the New York Times bestseller on that field, but, you know, began in his roots, you know, traveling to India and learning about mindfulness and meditation and how that was a massive, you know, influence on how he, he wrote, you know, about my, about emotional intelligence, not only in the workplace, but we saw it in happiness and understanding why we, why do we have stress? Why is it that we're thinking so much throughout the day and understanding that, yeah, you're going to have negative thoughts, but that's, you know, that's not on you that's not your fault right and when you can remove some of that responsibility and play more the role of the observer to the chaos and to the repeated thinking that's going on the more you can ah okay it's not my fault i can just observe i i'm not to blame for thoughts as they arise but i can play a bigger role on how i respond to them once they have arisen right mm -hmm. but then but once you throw an understanding about how we've evolved as communities and how you know, why it is that we have so much wanting to be loved by others. Because back in, you know, evolutionary times, if you were by yourself, less chances of survival. Why are we always on the lookout for danger? Because before, is that a stick or a snake? You know, is that a saber-toothed tiger in the bushes or is that a shadow? Because if not, effectively, our genes would be wiped out. But in today's modern society where we have so much safety around us, the brain doesn't know that. It's still on the lookout for danger. So it it manifests itself in like, oh yeah, you've got that presentation next week and you've got the meeting with the boss. And we're like, yeah, you know, we're, we're all jittery and anxious about it. But when you throw in a bit of that, oh, here's why your brain is doing that. And here's why it's completely normal. 
But, oh, even in that alone, without doing the meditation, that already adds an element of relief. And so, okay, everyone's going through the same thing. But then, yeah. yeah. So for me, mindfulness is not so much a, a relaxing tool. Or, it's just like it teaches you to be the observer of the of this wonderful chaos that's a beautiful evolutionary gift and it's like ah yeah just because this thought pops up and that I don't have to attach myself to it I don't have mm -hmm. to bring in all that attention that it's screaming for when it arises but it's learning that ah I can as it arises with kindness I can say yeah not right now because right now I'm doing this and I want to go back to this and how how life-changing and how you know impactful that changing the relationship with thinking can be Yes, I love what you're saying. It's like acknowledging and letting go. I love your yeah. language, but I don't have to attach myself to that, right? Yeah, you are like not our, responsible for that first. Right. You are merely the right. witness, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. And and every emotion doesn't have to be our truth. And there's so much that we can manage about our reactions to things. And I change your thinking, change your life, right? Like we can take, we can let go. We don't have to attach to that thing. We can take responsibility for thinking differently, acting differently, moving in a direction that might be a little different than the chaotic thought that we're in the middle of. We can let go of that. So yeah. And, and that is about how we feel, how we think, how we experience ourselves mm -hmm a huge impact on others you know sociologically speaking the number one way that we learn is through watching other people experiencing other people listening to other people all have a huge influence so how we show up you know if we show up in a way that's more centered or a way that's more balanced or a way that's more I don't know loving nurturing empathetic those have a huge influence yeah it resonates mm -hmm. realize on other people and on the society yeah. the community yeah. yeah i think my last point on that and it's it is actually a trained skill you know when you have these crazy thoughts of oh no i'm worried about this big presentation i have to do in front of 50 of my peers it's like, yeah don't worry about that you know just be present it's easier said than done you know those that comes from okay well you know, they need some kind of practice. You know, what is it? You, what is it like to observe thoughts? What is it like to continuously train that that muscle of keep bringing your attention back to the breath, so that you don't get carried away? Because the more stressful and the more out of your comfort zone a situation is, the bigger the skill and the practice, the, ex the number, the amount of experience you're going to need to draw from um will be required just like you know learning to do kickboxing or any kind of martial art you can't just go and have a look from the sideline and say yep i know how to fight now it's like there's going to be days in the gym where you have to you know take your beating where you're going to have to repeat things thousands of times and very wax on wax off kind of <laughs> approach yeah exactly and you know may not realize it at the time until there's a fight comes and you block a punch and oh, oh wow you know i'm developing these these skills of, of observation and so you know equanimity you know response versus reaction and um yeah so very very excited to hear that you that you are hearing a lot of it because it's um you know like i said it's my passion so two two questions before I, before i leave you tracy and um, the first one is you know, give, give me, you know, what's the top, on top of your list? Let's say the top three of the most important skills for executive management mm. you know, that you've seen. So if someone's applying for a new role and they go in and they come to you, hey, you know, give me, give me some advice. You know, what, what skills are important or, you know, where should my focuses be? What would, what would you, what would you say? Yeah, I would say that it's super critical to be focused on purpose. Like think about your purpose, think about how you communicate purpose, think about how you give others a sense of the bigger picture, a sense of how they matter. Think about how you matter and how your work ladders to something that counts. So I think purpose is super critical. Um, another one is uh, rapport and connections get really good at building connections, at um, building rapport, at being present with others, because that 
social capital is part of our own fulfillment. And it's frankly part of how we progress, right, as well. Um, and so that ability to connect and build rapport. And then I think the third thing is to, is to just kind of get out there, to experiment, to explore, to take action. There is a people who were unhappy at work. And when they made a plan and took action, it was significantly correlated with greater happiness. And I think sometimes we kind of wait for conditions. And I think we need to feel empowered about trying something, getting out there, learning, stretching, growing. And that is about kind of action and urgency and experimentation and exploration. Wise words, wise words. So finally, um, one question I usually end my podcast with, and um, the one that I get most enjoyment from is when I ask my guests, you know, given your experience, you know, and around happiness and the research around it, in jobs, workforce, future, what matters most for you? Wow. Are, do you mean for me personally or for me? Yeah, just, just for you, Tracy, just in, you know, for you, what matters most? in life for you? Yeah, what matters most in life for me is the relationships that I build, that I sustain, that I grow, the people that I get to learn from, the people that I connect with, my family, my friends, new people that I meet from whom I can learn something. I thrive on just feeling those connections and maintaining those connections over time and valuing people and valuing that sort of netting or webbing. Um, that's really important to me. Wonderful. Well, I just want to say this time to, to thank you for, for joining. It's been a, a wonderful conversation. I've been smiling the whole way through, you know, the, and I'm not only asking the questions, but hearing things that, you know, that you reaffirm that, ah, oh, good, you know, uh, and to, to learn the, the new information that you're passing my way. So if I'm listening to this and I want to find out about you, you know, maybe purchase some of your books, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. So tracypepper.com has everything, how to purchase books, the book, um, The Secrets to Happiness at Work and yeah. to Life are available everywhere, you know, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, um, Porchlight Book Company, you name it. Um, I'm Tracy Brower, PhD, but I'm on all the social channels. Um, so my website is a place to probably kind of start. And thank you. Okay. Thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation. I so appreciate the time and so appreciate the dialogue. Yeah, it's um, like I said, it's always a pleasure to speak to someone that, you know, has similar passions. Like I said, this idea of connection and relationship. So you can guarantee I'm going to I'm going to keep in touch. I'm going to be following following you and the articles that you're writing enthusiastically and like you know i would love for us to to touch base at some point in the near future as well we could just jump on and and have a, another little chit chat i'd love that that would be great i'm gonna stay in touch with you as well i super value our time that was awesome thanks for making it this far and if you've enjoyed the podcast please click the like button and give us a follow and make sure that you're notified next month when we release our episodes with the wonderful John Kabat-Zinn. More videos, meditations and all that good stuff at mindfulnews.uk.